Chapter Twenty Five of Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal by Sarah J. Richardson. Chapter Twenty Five. Eventful Journey. Once more I had the good fortune to obtain a passage across the river in a ferry-boat, and was soon passing onward upon the other side, passing through two places called St. Mary's and St. John's. I followed a railroad to a village which I was informed was called Stottsville, a great part of the property being owned by Mr. Stotts, to whom I was at once directed. Here I stopped and was kindly received by the gentleman and his wife. They offered me refreshments, gave me some articles of clothing. Then he carried me twelve miles and left me at Rouse's Point to take the cars for Albany. He gave me six dollars to pay my expenses, and a letter of introduction to a gentleman by the name of Williams, in which he stated all the facts he knew concerning me, and commended me to his care for protection. I think he said Mr. Williams lived on North Pearl Street, but I may be mistaken in this and also some other particulars. As I had no thought of relating these facts at the time of their occurrence, I did not fix them in my mind as I otherwise should have done. Mr. Stotts said that if I could not find the gentleman to whom the letter was directed, I was to take it to the city authorities, and they would protect me. As he assisted me from the carriage, he said, You will stop here until the cars come along, and you must get your own ticket. I shall not notice you again, and I do not wish you to speak to me. I entered the depot, intending to follow his directions, but when I found the cars would not come along for three hours, I did not dare to stay. There was quite a large collection of people there, and I feared that someone would suspect and stop me. I therefore resolved to follow the railroad and walk on to the next station. On my way I passed over a railroad bridge, which I should think was two miles long. The wind blew very hard at the time, and I found it exceedingly difficult to walk upon the narrow timbers. More than once I came near losing my precarious footing, and I was in constant fear that the train would overtake me before I got over. In that case I had resolved to step outside the track where I thought I could stand upon the edge of the bridge and hold on by the telegraph poles, and thus let them pass without doing me injury. Happily, however, I was not compelled to resort to this perilous expedient, but passed the bridge in safety. At the end I found another, nearly as long, connected with it by a drawbridge. When I drew near it was up for a boat to pass, but a man called to me and asked if I wished to go over. I told him I did, and he let down the bridge. As I approached him he asked, Are you mad? Or how came you here? I told him I had walked from the depot at Rouse's Point. He appeared 
greatly surprised, and said, You are the first person who ever walked over that bridge. Will you come to my house and rest a while? You must be very weary, and my wife will be glad to see you. She is rather lonely here, and is pleased to see anyone. Will you come? Tis only a short distance, just down under the bridge. Those last words decided me. I thanked him, but firmly refused to go one step out of my way. I thought that he wished to deceive me, perhaps take me to some out-of-the-way place, and give me up to my pursuers. At all events it was wise not to trust him, for I was sure there was no house near the bridge, certainly not under it. I have since learned that such is the fact. As I turned to leave him, he again urged me to stop, and said, The cars will be along, and they will run over you. How do you expect to get out of their way? I told him I would risk it, and left him. I passed on in safety, and soon came to the depot, where I took the evening train for Albany. At eight the same evening I left the cars and walked on towards Troy, which I think was four miles distant. Here I met a lad of whom I inquired the way to Albany. You cannot get there tonight, said he, and I advise you not to try. When he saw that I was determined to go on, he said I would pass a tavern called the Halfway House, and if I was tired I could stop there. It was about eleven o'clock when I passed this house. There were several persons on the piazza, laughing, talking, and singing, who called to me as I passed, shouted after me, and bade me to stop. Exceedingly frightened, I ran with all possible speed, but they continued to call after me till I was out of hearing. Seeing a light at a house nearby, I ventured to rap on the door. It was opened by a woman who asked me to walk in. I inquired the distance to Albany. She informed me, but said, You can't go there tonight. I told her I must. Well, said she, if you will go, the watch will take care of you when you get there. She then asked, Were those men calling after you? I told her I supposed they were when she replied with a peculiar smile, I guess you can't be a very nice kind of girl, or you wouldn't be on the street this time of night. My feelings were so deeply wounded I could hardly restrain my tears at this cruel insinuation. But pride came to my aid, and choking down the rising emotion, I replied as carefully as possible, I must do as I can and not as I would. It was about one o'clock at night when I entered the principal street in Albany, and as the lady predicted, a watchman came to me and asked why I was out that time of night. I gave him Mr. Stott's letter. He stood beside a lamp-post and read it, when he seemed satisfied and said, I know the man, come with me and I'll take you to his house. I followed him a long way till at last he stopped before a large house and rang the bell. Mr. Williams came to the door and asked what was wanted. The watchman gave him the letter. He read it and invited me to stop. 
His wife got up, received me very kindly, and gave me some supper, for which I was truly grateful. Nor was I less thankful for the delicate consideration with which they avoided any allusion to my convent life, or my subsequent flight and suffering. Mrs. Williams saw that I was sad and weary, and as she conducted me to a comfortable bed she remarked, You are safe at last, and I am glad of it. You can now retire without the apprehension of danger, and sleep in perfect security. You are with friends who will protect you as long as you choose to remain with us. Notwithstanding the good lady's assurance of safety, I found it impossible to close my eyes. I was among strangers in a strange place, and having been so often deceived, might I not be again? Perhaps after all their pretended kindness they were plotting to betray me. A few days, however, convinced me that I had at last found real friends, who would protect me in the hour of danger to the utmost of their ability. I remained here some four weeks, and should have remained longer, but an incident transpired that awakened all my fears, and again sent me forth into the wide world, a fugitive and a wanderer. I went to my chamber one night, when I heard a sound like the full, heavy respiration of a man in deep sleep. The sound appeared to come from under the bed, but stopped as I entered the room. I was very much alarmed, but I controlled my feelings, and instead of running shrieking from the room, I deliberately closed the blinds, shut the windows, adjusted the curtain, all the time carelessly humming a tune, and taking up my lamp I slowly left the room. Once outside the door I ran in all haste to Mr. Williams, and told him what I had heard. He laughed at me, said it was all imagination, but to quiet my fears he went to my room resolved to convince me that no one was there. I followed and stood at the door while he lifted the bed valance, when a large, tall man sprang forth, and I caught him with one hand while with the other he drew a pistol from beneath his coat, saying, Let me go and I'll depart in peace, but attempt to detain me and I'll blow your brains out. I shrieked, and Mrs. Williams came in great terror and consternation to see what was the matter, but she could render no assistance, and Mr. Williams, being unarmed, was obliged to let him go. The watch were immediately called, and they sought for the intruder in every direction. No effort was spared to find him, that we might at least learn the object of this untimely visit. But the search was all in vain, no trace of his whereabouts could be discovered. Mr. Williams said he did not believe it was me he sought. He thought the object was robbery and perhaps arson and murder, but he would not think that I was in the least danger. The man, he said, in hastily concealing himself, had taken the first hiding place he could find. Yet I thought otherwise. Indeed, so sure was I that he was an agent of the priests, sent forth for the express purpose of arresting me, 
no earthly consideration would have induced me to remain there another day. The rest of that night I spent in a state of anxiety I cannot describe. Sleep fled from my eyes. I dared not even undress and go to bed, but I sat in my chair or walked the room every moment expecting the return of the mysterious visitor. I shuddered at every sound, whether real or imaginary. Once in particular I remember the distant roll of carriage wheels fell upon my ear. I listened. It came near and still nearer, till at last it stopped, as I thought, at the gate. For a moment I stood literally stupefied with terror, and then I hastily prepared to use the means for self-destruction I had already provided in anticipation of such an emergency. I was still resolved never to be taken alive. Give me liberty or give me death was now the language of my soul. If I could not enjoy the one, I would cordially embrace the other. But it was a sad alternative after all I had suffered that I might be free. After all my buoyant hopes, all my ardent aspirations for a better life. Oh, it was a bitter thing thus to stand in the darkness of night, and with my own hand carefully adjust the cord that was to cut me off from the land of the living, and in a moment launch my trembling soul into the vast, unknown, untried, and fearful future that men call eternity. Was this to be the only use I was to make of liberty? Was it for this I had so long struggled, toiled, wept, and prayed? God of mercy, I cried, save, oh save me from this last great sin, from the sad and dire necessity which thus urges me to cut short a life which thou alone canst give. My prayer was heard, but how slowly passed the hours of that weary night while I waited for the day that I might hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Truly, at that time I could say with one of old, fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror hath overwhelmed me. My heart is sore pained within me, and the terrors of death are fallen upon me. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove, for then I would flee away and be at rest. But alas, I had not the wings of a dove, and whither should I flee from the furious grasp of my relentless persecutors? Again I must go forth into the busy haunts of men, I must mingle with the multitude, and what chance had I for ultimate escape? If I left these kind friends, and leave them I must, who would take me in? In whom could I confide? Who would have the power to rescue me in my hour of need? In God alone could I trust, yet why is he so far from helping me? Why are my prayers so long unanswered? And why does he thus allow the wicked to triumph, to lay snares for the feet of the innocent, and wrongfully persecute those whom their wanton cruelty 
hath caused to sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Why does he not at once break the bands of iron and let the oppressed go free? The tedious night at length passed away. When I met Mr. Williams in the morning, I told him I could no longer remain with him, for I was sure if I did, I should be suddenly arrested in some unguarded moment and carried back to Montreal. He urged me to stay, assured me he would never allow them to take me, said that he thought some of going south, and I could go with him and thus be removed far from all whom I feared. Mrs. Williams also strove to persuade me to stay, but though sorry to appear ungrateful, I dared not remain another night where I felt that my danger was so great. When they found that I was determined to go, Mr. Williams said I had better go to Worcester, Massachusetts, and try to get employment in some farmer's family, a little out of the city. He gave me money to bear my expenses until I found a place where I could earn my living. It was with a sad heart that I left this hospitable roof, and as I turned away I said in my heart, Shall I always be hunted through the world in this manner, obliged to flee like a guilty thing? And shall I never find a home of happiness and peace? Must sorrow and despair forever be the portion of my cup? But no words of mine can describe what I felt at that moment. I longed for the power to sound a warning through the length and breadth of the land, to cry in the ears of all the people, Beware of Romanism, like the patient man of Uz, with whose history I have since become familiar, I was ready to exclaim, Oh, that my words were now written, oh, that they were printed in a book, graven with an iron pen, that the world might know what a fearful and bitter thing it is to be a nun, to be subject to the control of those ruthless tyrants, the Romish priests. Once more I entered the depot, and mingled with the crowd around the ticket office. But no pen can describe my terror when I found myself the object of particular attention. I heard people remark about my strange and unnatural appearance, and I feared I might be taken up for a crazy person, if not for a nun. Thinking that I saw an enemy in every face, and a pursuer in every one who came near me, I hastened to take refuge in the cars. There I waited with the greatest impatience for the starting of the train. Slowly the cars were filled. Very leisurely the passengers sought their seats, while I sat trembling in every limb, and the cold perspiration starting from every pore. How carefully I scanned every face! How eagerly I watched for some indication of the priest or the spy! So intense was my anxiety, those few moments seemed to me an age of agony. At length the shrill whistle announced that all was ready, and like sweetest music the sound fell upon my ears. The train dashed off at lightning speed, but to me it seemed like the movement of a snail. Once under way 
I ventured to breathe freely, and hope again revived. Perchance I might yet escape. But even as the thought passed my mind, a man entered the cars and seated himself directly before me. I thought he regarded me with too much interest, and thinking to shun him, I quietly left my seat and retired to the other end of the car. He soon followed, and again my fears revived. He at first tried to converse with me, but finding I would not reply, he began to question me in the most direct and impertinent manner. Again I changed my seat, and again he followed. I then sought the conductor, and revealed to him enough of my history to enlist his sympathy and ensure his protection. To his honour be it spoken, I did not appeal to him in vain. He severely reproved the man for his impertinence, and for the rest of the journey I was shielded from insult or injury. Nothing further of interest transpired until I reached Worcester, when the first face that met my eye as I was about to leave the cars was that of a Romish priest. I could not be mistaken, for I had often seen him at Montreal. He might not have been looking for me, but he watched every passenger as they left the cars in a way that convinced me he had some special reason for doing it. As I too had special reasons for avoiding him just at that time, I stepped back out of sight until the passengers were all out of the cars and the priest had turned away. I then sprang out upon the opposite side, and turning my back upon the depot, hastened away amid the wilderness of houses, not knowing whither I went. For a long time I wandered around, until at length, being faint and weary, I began to look for some place where I could obtain refreshment but when I found a restaurant I did not dare to enter. A number of Irishmen were standing around who were in all probability Catholics. I would not venture among them, but as I turned aside I remembered that Mr. Williams had directed me to seek employment a little out of the city. I then inquired the way to Main Street, and having found it, I turned to the north and walked on till I found myself out of the thickly settled part of the city. Then I began to seek for employment, and after several fruitless applications I chanced to call upon a man whose name was Handy. He received me in the kindest manner, and when I asked for work he said his wife did not need to hire me, but I was welcome to stop with them and work for my board until I found employment elsewhere. This offer I joyfully accepted, and as I became acquainted in the place, many kind hands were extended to aid me in my efforts to obtain an honest living. In this neighborhood I still reside, truly thankful for past deliverance, grateful for present mercies, and confidently trusting God for the future. End of chapter 25